I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast, where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. If you like to read, don't you just love discussing what you just read with someone else? I love it. So I reached out to Amy McLennan, co-host of InfoQuench podcast, who I knew was greatly impacted by Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And you get to eavesdrop on our little mini book club discussion. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist who was working on a manuscript on finding meaning in life when he became a prisoner in Auschwitz. Surviving the concentration camp, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning, and I quote, as a concrete example that life holds potential meaning under any conditions, even miserable ones. Amy and I talk about finding meaning in our lives and how we were impacted by learning Viktor Frankl's perspective on it. It just might give you insight and how to find meaning in your life. Amy McLennan, welcome to Soul Sister Conversations. Hi, Dana. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation because uh, I love books and I'm assuming that you love books. So I'm I'm delighted that we get to have a conversation about a book that we've read that we have in common and one that it, you know has been sold internationally around the world, uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. But you, at first, just to introduce you a bit, you are co-host of InfoQuench podcast with your husband, Jeff, and congrats on getting and keeping that going for well over a year because doing a podcast takes great effort. <laughs> and yes, uh, your podcast, yeah, your podcast is, you, you say it's looking for life improvement tips you don't have to meditate on, which I like that. And both you and Jeff discuss simple ways you can better build a better life offering curated info with practical takeaways you can start using today. And you have a variety of topics that you and Jeff discuss. And the most recent one is how not to get murdered. <laughs> kind of yes. fun. What better uh, life improvement? But why, why did... <laughs> Yes, exactly. The ultimate one, how not to get yourself murdered. (laughs) So why did you and Jeff start the podcast? Well, I was really looking for some creative outlet in terms of a hobby. And Jeff had suggested it to me. He had radio shows in the past and felt it was something that we may enjoy doing together. And that's really how we got started. Okay. And last year, you had two episodes, not just one, but two episodes uh, that was focused on the book of Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I'm curious, are are you a big reader? Oh, I absolutely am. Uh, A walk through my house would be uh, (laughs) answer that question for you very quickly. But uh, I currently have, I think, three uh, books on the go plus an audio book. And it's it's a long list of books that I still want to read. I just hope I have enough time to squeeze them into this lifetime. Oh, that's so funny. I used to have a neighbor who said he wished he had started reading earlier because that was exactly his sentiment. You know, and he was 80 and he was like, I'm, I'm running out of time to read all the books that I want to, <laughs> want, things that I want to learn, you know. Now, do you read a wide genre of books or do you focus on spiritual personal development or? Uh, I'm pretty wide, pretty varied. If people give me a recommendation, even if it's not something I would typically read, I'll usually give it a read just out of curiosity. And that just expands, you know, my knowledge base and and, uh, makes me a little bit more aware of the the variety that's out there. But I really Mm -hmm. do love nonfiction books in general. I tend to lean toward the personal development, uh, self-help section when I go into a bookstore. Mm, me too. And I know I made a decision. I had uh, Melissa Doucette on. She's a realtor from Moncton. And she read, I think, like 60 books last year, or 65. So we had a great discussion about books. And that kicked off um, the January 2021 session. And um, uh, and that was one of the, re- she really inspired me to read a lot more because I'd wanted to read more. And I was saying I wanted to read, but I really wasn't doing it. And so I really got into it after my conversation with her. And it was because I made the decision um, not to read fiction or not to focus on fiction because I realized I had paralysis analysis. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure what to read. And I realized my um, interest was more on the nonfiction side, like the leadership, personal development, spirituality. And once I made that decision, I just was able to read a lot more voraciously. Well, yes. And I think it's it's great to push ourselves to explore new areas. I remember years ago going into the Coles bookstore here in our, our 
wonderful city of St. John. And I would really just go to the bestsellers list and I would pick the number one uh, and fiction. And then I would alternate and go between fiction and the nonfiction in terms of bestsellers and work my way through the list. And regardless of whether or not I knew the author or was interested in that particular topic, I would uh, push myself just to go ahead and, and read through. And I was exposed to a lot of great writers that way. Mm, yeah, that's a great, that's a great technique. Now, what, one of the things that caught my eye is that w- when you were doing your um, discussion around Man's Search for Meaning, because I had heard about this book for years, and I think I was introduced to the title through uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer. So I was a huge fan of his. And I think that's where I heard the book title first. And I've been meaning to get to it, I think, just because of the title. Um, but you said it was a book that you read and, you know, had a great impact on your or changed your life. And I was curious about how you came to know about this particular book title, because it was actually written, you know, I don't know, in the 40s 19, or 50s. 1946. So he he read it, or sorry, wrote it straight out of uh, the concentration camp experience. And it was, I think, originally written in German and released as a psychologist's mm-hmm. experience as a concentration camp and, and then later under various titles. And then eventually uh, the English translation in 59 as Man's Search for Meeting, which is the, the version I read. And it's one of those things that I don't know if you've ever heard a new word for the first time and then all of a sudden you seem to hear it everywhere or you're looking to you know buy a certain model of car and all of a sudden you see them on the road all the way all the time and that's sort of what happened with this book I I had heard about it on a podcast I was listening to one of Tim Ferriss's podcasts one of my uh one of my favorite podcasters and it was mentioned on that podcast then you know the name Victor Frankel rang a bell and I realized I often share quotes on social media and I realized I had shared one of his quotes not realizing who he was uh I knew he was an author and the quote I had shared was when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And I had shared that uh, based on our current situation in the pandemic. I felt it was very fitting, but I sort of looked back and realized, well, that was Viktor Frankl and he had written this book. And then I guess the third thing that came to mind was uh, my husband, Jeff, mentioned a colleague was reading the book. And I thought to myself, this book was written 75 years ago. And all of a sudden, within the course of a few weeks, I hear mention of it three times. And then that, to me, is a sign I need to read this book. So that's really how it came into my life. And when you say that 75 years ago, that's pretty incredible that it was that long ago. And and for people who haven't read it or haven't been introduced to it, it is um, it, Victor Frankel was a psychologist. And I believe he had had this written or some of this logotherapy, I think he was developing this idea. He had had the manuscript written and of course it was confiscated when into when he went into the concentration camp. And so I found the first half of the book was really his experience in that concentration camp. And I always find those stories absolutely fascinating. I mean, horrific and unbelievable. And um, he says himself that when he came out, he really wrote that as an a concrete example of that of how you can actually you know make the most of or have even have meaning even during the most miserable times and with no anticipation that it was going to have some profound effect or make a bestsellers list so it's pretty incredible that he just wrote this experience and it's begun to circulate and uh, really address that idea of how do we find meaning in our life so how did it impact you like how was that? You, you said it was kind of a life-changing book for you. Oh, it, it absolutely was. I think one of the the things that I had been looking for, and I, I mentioned enjoying personal development, self-improvement books, but you know, when we look at the seasons of our lives, and I, I look back to when we're in our 20s, we're really focusing on the essentials. You know, we're getting out of uh, university, buying our first home you know, looking for a job in our field, if we're lucky enough to do that, but we're really just focused on those essentials. And then as we move into our 30s, we start focusing on becoming more established. You know, many of us are having children and looking at uh, what their needs are, and we're progressing in our career, maybe focusing on traveling. But for me, um, as I moved into that season of my life, when I was 38, we had a, a devastating experience where my father had a brainstem stroke. 
and uh, and he survived, and he's you know uh, alive today, and and has a good quality of life. But he was locked in for some time. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, is when you wow. uh, have a, a, a stroke of that level, you uh, locked in is when you're fully aware, uh, cognizant of what's going on around you. You can still feel uh, everything, but you're not able to move. Uh, initially, he was only able to move his eyes up and down, and we would uh, communicate just through blinking, and it progressed from there. And I think to me that experience was incredibly. Uh, it was a, it was a milestone in my life. Uh, one of those, you know, you think the the times that change you, and that changed me. It changed my perspective. Uh, they were my parents were preparing for retirement, and they had uh, you know worked very hard and instilled a very strong work ethic in me. And I had always lived my life that way. You know, from an early age, uh, as soon as I started working, I started planning for retirement. And I remember my mother saying to me, "Don't wait." You know. Uh, you, tomorrow isn't promised and you need to live your life for the day. And for me, part of that was to also find meaning and purpose in my life. And that's why I found this book so impactful because it helped me find that meaning and helped me find, you know, the, my, my reason why I know Simon Sinek talks about, you know, finding your why, but I mean, our ultimate why is truly around the meaning of life and purpose. And uh, I, I really do feel that this gave me a view unlike any other. I had often, you know, sought out a concrete answer to meaning and purpose. You know, this is the thing you should do, or this is the task that you are, are to accomplish or the thing you are to invent or the idea you are to create to contribute to the world. But this book really wasn't uh, focused on the concrete. It was that the sheer existence of us is uh, reason enough for us to have meaning. I mean, there are so many, so many layers to this book. <laughs> There, there is. And I, you know, I could definitely go back and, and read it again. And for me, this book wasn't a turn, turning point for me, but I had already done a lot of other work up to that point. So it was certainly a validation of things that I had known or suspected and, and loved his perspective on it that, you know, as he says, it's life holds potential meaning under any conditions. And you think, how can you find meaning, um, you know, in a concentration camp? And the fact that he could, and you know, but, it, you know, as a psychologist, he looked all around him and saw examples of people who couldn't. I mean, I mean, it'd be, it would challenge almost anyone. And don't, don't you find it interesting? Um, I don't know if it's interesting or not, but we have to go through something difficult often before we can, we start searching for uh, either a better way to live. Like you went through with your dad. I had a similar story with my mother and it forces, it, it forced me inward is what it did. And it sounds like ultimately, you know, through reading books like this, it helped you do the same. Yes. I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's, really those life experiences, those major life events that give you insight into what's important. And I, I guess the world over is, has experienced that to a certain degree with the ongoing pandemic. You know, what, where, what in our life is truly important? Where do we get our meaning when all else is taken away, when uh, we're, you know, locked down in our homes or, or working from home, you know, various scenarios, depending on where you're listening uh, to this podcast from. But it really does force you to focus inward and really contemplate the meaning of why we're here. Mm. Yeah, and it's such a big one to tackle. And I think a lot of people don't want to face that. And it's easy to bury yourself in distraction, whether it's work or, or what have you, unless you're faced with something that causes you to, to face it, like the uh, concentration camp prisoners had to. And um, it, one of the things that uh, one of the quotes from the book is he talked about the majority of prisoners suffered from a kind of inferiority complex. And we, we all had once been or had fancied ourselves to be somebody. And now we were treated like complete non-entities. 
And I think of this, there's been different points in my life where I felt like somebody. I remember the transition of going from, uh, I was I took a, a Bachelor of Education and I was like a student intern. And when I had finished um, that, I had finished my program. And I remember feeling like one day I was somebody, I was a teacher and I had meaning and um, you know purpose. And the next day I was unemployed with a degree. And I remember that feeling. And he says, the consciousness of one's inner value is anchored in higher, more spiritual things and cannot be shaken, for, in his instance, by camp life. But how many free men, let alone prisoners, possess it? And I, I think that's the connection of how many people can connect or anchor themselves to something higher than themselves. And certainly at the time when I was transitioning from you know, a student teacher to my, my normal life, I wasn't connected to anything. And hence began the unraveling or the, that struggle within. And it took me a long time before I got to an inward life. Would you, um, what would your sort of comments on that be? You know, what was your earlier life look like? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting that you, you say that. We recently did an episode on, you know, who are you? When you strip away your, mm-hmm. your titles and, uh, you know, your role perhaps as a mother, as a wife, as a daughter, as a friend, uh, what, what your career may be, what is left? You know, who, what is the essence of who you are? And it is something I've contemplated. Actually, when you, you had asked me to put together a, you know, a bio in preparation for this podcast, and I thought to myself, who am I if I don't tie myself or <laughs> tether myself to some external thing? Uh, you know, if typically you would write out Absolutely. your resume, you know, this is my educational background. Yeah. This, this is my work experience. Um, this is where I reside. Those types of things. But really, it, that's not all that's not who we are. And our meaning is very unique. It's unique to us. I found that comforting about the book that even if we never fully understand the meaning and the impact we have on our environment and the people around us, it's still true that we are the only person who could have led our own life that could have those impacts and that the world would be a different place if we were not in it. And that in of itself is evidence of meaning. Mm. I and I yeah you talked about you know we struggle with our meaning our our you know what is it all about and particularly when somebody is enduring an atrocity uh, such as the concentration camps and when we look at what's happening in current day in Afghanistan and and uh, you know natural disasters uh, recently in Haiti and it's it's very easy to look at that and and wonder what where is the meaning in that? Where is the meaning in suffering at that level? And it's it's incredibly hard. I think many of us question uh, what what the overall end game is, and many people seek comfort in faith. You know, they'll they, yes. whether it's uh, you know they have comfort in ultimately in a heaven and uh, eternal you know bliss in, in that state. For me, I've never been one who. Um, well, from an early age, I, I did follow organized religion, but uh, it's not something that's part of my life now. And I, I've always sought comfort in more in science, you know, energy is neither created nor destroyed. So understanding right. that the the energy of human life continues on within, you know, within the, the closed system of our universe. And uh, that has given me comfort. But even with that, I am still looking for, you know, happiness and purpose and meaning in my life. And I had often gone back to the concept of Dalai Lama, mentioning that the meaning of life is essentially happiness and to make others happy. Mm. And certainly that's uh, a strong piece of what's led me through my life and attached to that happiness, though, needs to be meaning and purpose. And that will that will cause me to be happy. So it it is an exploration yeah. to you know to uh, to continue that, but it having that purpose and meaning is definitely at the forefront of my life and in, in this season of my life, and wanting mm. to to add value, you know, to those uh, to any to the relationships uh, that I'm involved in to uh, anything uh, that I do, I want to add value, and that's become very important mm. to me. I was listening to a podcast this morning and and some 
the person that was being interviewed had said, uh, passion is when basically you're serving yourself and purpose is when you're serving other people. And I thought, because those are terms that get tossed around a lot, right? People are trying to find their passion. They're trying to find their purpose. Uh, and so I thought that was an interesting way. And you were talking um, about some basically sort of, I don't know, it was future type things. And that's really what Viktor Frankl was saying too, is that in order to kind of get meaning, you need to be future focused. And for his case, so he had this um, logotherapy that he was working on and had a manuscript and it was confiscated. And that in fact was something that was drawing him to survive this, even though he had lost his wife and all sorts of other relatives. And so he's saying that you need to have something like that, but a, a work or a deed that you're working toward or experiencing something or encountering someone. So maybe waiting it out for a loved one or, or being connected with them again. And I thought, because uh, he said the ex why of existence allows someone to bear almost anyhow. And it's a perfect example, you know, being in a concentration camp, of course, um, you know, they were bearing unbelievable conditions that you would have to have a very strong why. In his case, he did to finish that manuscript. Um, do do would you agree that future focus would be a big part of that? Yes, definitely. Most definitely. One of the things that struck me with the book was just that concept of hope and hope is very much future focused. And I know mm. he talked about the idea that when men in the concentration camp would do certain jobs, they would be rewarded by the guards uh, giving them cigarettes and that they would then trade those cigarettes for soup. And it would be evident that somebody had lost hope when they would not trade their cigarettes for soup, but would simply smoke them because they knew that they were just going for one of life's last pleasures and had given up a hope of the future. And I, I recall a specific story where he talked about a man who had dreamt uh, while in the camp of being freed on a very specific date. He had a dream that he would be freed on March 30th. And when that day rolled around and it didn't happen, he passed away the very next day. And so that idea of hope, you know, hope for the future being so tied to our immune response and our ability to continue fighting is, uh, he had such concrete evidence of that. It was a great blend of somebody coming in with a, a background in psych, you know, psychiatry, bringing that scientific perspective and being able to witness human behavior through that lens. I mean, it, it truly is a gift to the reader to have a different view of uh, the concentration camp experience than I've ever seen portrayed. And I know that um, I, I think most of us have experienced, uh, you know, watching a film or reading books on World War II. And, and I remember being, uh, you know, a, probably a teenager finding out about concentration camps for the first time and being absolutely horrified that that was something that even happened, that, you know, that that was a part of our, our history, uh, let alone trying to get my head around how people could endure it. And what I found fascinating about his book is he, uh, he went about it with the understanding that the reader already had an appreciation for what happened in the concentration camps. He, he hinted at, you know, different things that took place, but that wasn't the focus. He didn't get into the, the, the very details, I guess, specifics, of, uh, yeah. the specifics of it. He focused more on people's response uh, and, and the behaviors. And I love the discussion around the guards because that is something I, I could never get my mind around how humans could do that to other humans. And he talks about, you know, the different, levels of guards, that there were among the guards true sadists, and that those mm. those uh, men were chosen for the most horrific of tasks because they were, in fact, clinically, uh, they could be clinically diagnosed as sadists, whereas he said many other men were simply numb to the fact. And then he spoke of men, a man who actually would sneak off to get medicine from a nearby uh, town in order to help some of the prisoners and relieve their suffering and how the prisoners, when they were liberated, actually protected that man from the troops until they could explain that he was actually an ally for them. And I, I appreciated his view of the guards because that's not something that 
is has been uh, that I've seen anything that has delved into uh, in the way that he did. True, I, and I, I and you're right. Um, I think I was able to read this book without holding my breath as much as other. Uh, stories because he didn't go into the details. You're right. It was more of a response of how an examination of how people responded to these different situations as he helped us understand how you could find meaning in the most horrific of circumstances. Because I know I, I tried to read Elie Wiesel's, uh, I think it's called Night, years ago, and I had to close it. I just couldn't do it. And you know, the, now I might be able to uh, come back and read that. But but you're right. I, it, this was really like a psychology experiment, viewing it through the eyes of a psychologist of how people actually responded. Um, did this actually help you formalize some sort of meaning for your life? Did you walk away just going, this is my meaning in life, or you're still, it's still unfolding or it's giving you more clarity around it? I think it made me more comfortable with not having a clear picture of my purpose. I, I, mm-hmm. That that was, an, that was normal, that that's an okay thing. But to have that understanding that there is purpose, that there is meaning, that life is not you know, just for not, it's, uh, there's a reason why we're here. And that to me was what was most powerful. I mean, the book itself is incredibly short. It's, you know, it's such, yeah. it's such a quick read. And it's uh, amazing how much is packed into it. I could read a, a sentence over and over again, and uh, just draw so much from his words. They are so well put together. It's a book that I can easily recommend to people because I as mentioned, it doesn't go into uh, details that may be, you know, particularly, uh, you know, for people who are extra sensitive and, and may have a hard time with that. I think it it provides just enough of that context to drive home his his messaging. But I think mm-hmm. that it really changed my perspective on suffering in general, you know, and the purpose of suffering. Uh, I've done a lot of reading on Buddhism and, and understand um you know, the basic premise of, you know, the existence of suffering and how it's related to our attachments and, and that there can be an end to suffering. But one thing that stood out in the book is he talked about uh, when he was working as a psychiatrist, speaking with a man who had lost his wife. And I don't know if you recall this story, but his wife had passed away two years prior and he was still grieving tremendously and he could not get over his grief. And he could not see any purpose in that suffering, you know, in the, in the loss of, mm-hmm. of his wife. And Frankel said to him, well, had you passed away before she did, then it would be her that was suffering. So your suffering mm-hmm. has uh, basically saved her from having to go through the same, uh, same experience. And, I found that such an interesting perspective on suffering that there, if, if you look hard enough, there is meaning behind it. And he, right. he used that meaning to help so many people. I know before even going into the concentration camps, he worked a lot in suicide prevention and had incredible success rates using uh, logotherapy and, and helping people find meaning, understanding that there were people who were, uh, depending on them in their lives and that that was a reason to continue on if nothing else and uh, had mm. incredible success rates with, with alleviating, uh, you know, suffering and, and, and dealing specifically with people who were at risk of suicide. Yeah. And I remember that story and it did have an impact. And so it's so interesting because my husband and I will chat about this. And when we talk about, well, meaning and all sorts of things, it's, it was almost like a reframing to help the the man understand that you actually saved your wife some suffering. You're doing the suffering and that satisfied him and knowing that he had a higher purpose in uh, that he that he took pleasure in knowing that she wouldn't suffer, have those same kinds of um feelings. And, you know, when my husband and I discuss things like this, my husband will often say, you know, aren't we just telling stories, you know, to make ourselves feel better? (laughs) And I'm like, well, to some degree, it kind of is because I feel like you can create meaning. Um, You know, we can see it however we want. And part of it is that, you know, when we're in the depths of our own sorrow and our own suffering, sometimes we can't see 
how this could also be another narrative. I often say there's, you know, two stories at play and it's either your egotistical one telling of how you've lost something or this other side of your, your highest self that's um, also has a story that is actually serving you. And, um, and, and to be, it be, it's really making a mindset shift to some degree. And I don't know if meaning is being able to create a mindset shift, but I, I think he had given a few examples that where he helped people reframe their life and it really satisfied them. Yes. I, I don't know what your thoughts on that are <laughs> reframing or are we telling stories, Amy, or do you think it's actual meaning? <laughs> well, you know, are they stories or are they explanations or are they just, just simply a paradigm shift? You know, I often say this to my mm. husband when somebody, you know, races by us on the highway and you want to, uh, to curse them because they're cutting in front of you to make an exit. And I say, well, what if they're on their way to the hospital? What if they've received a call that a loved one is in the emergency Absolutely. room? And it's sort of that that story of providing the benefit of the doubt. And who knows if that's true mm-hmm. or not, but it allows us to uh, go to that, you know, the, the, the common saying of everybody has a story and, and we don't always know what it is, but it's important that we give them the benefit of the doubt and that we uh, we contemplate that story. Maybe it is all stories, but if if it's comforting (laughs) and it makes us be nicer to one another and it takes away the road rage, then (laughs) maybe that alone makes it worth it. (laughs) I don't know if you've read any of Dr. Edith Egger's work. She has a book called The Choice and the Gift. Both are excellent. Uh, And The Choice talks about her experience in a concentration camp in in fairly uh, grave detail. And then The Gift, of course, are all her lessons. She's also became a psychologist years after um, leaving the concentration camps. But the, the title of her first book is called The Choice because that's what it is. You can choose... Uh, to live from a place of love, to um, make that shift in your life and seeing that your life has meaning is no different. So it really having meaning is a choice. Would would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think it goes back to that quote, you know, we, we can't choose our circumstances, but we can certainly choose our reactions to them. And that mm-hmm. alone can alter our overall experience of any situation. You know, I, I sort of going back through some of the things that really stood out for me in this book. And Frankel talks about just meaning that the meaning of life is going to differ from person to person, from day to day, from hour to hour. Right. And, it, and what matters is not the meaning of life in general, but rather the specific meaning of a person's life at any given moment. So it's all those little micro stories we tell us, <laughs> tell ourselves. Um, right. <laughs> At any given moment, but uh, and he he gives the example or an analogy of a chess master being asked what you know what's the best move in the world, but there is no right answer. It depends on the situation and on, on the opponent. There's uh, no one situation or or one meaning of life that will apply to all of us. And to me, that was probably the main message I took from the book. It's not some one word or one sentence answer that is universal, uh, you know, that this is the meaning that we must all take from life. It really is our own unique experience. Mm, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the book that had more of a turning impact for me, and that was like 10 years ago, was um, Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. And I think it was in chapter nine, he actually talked about purpose. And I couldn't wait to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> to that chapter. And he's he's he described it as we have two purposes, an inner purpose and an outer purpose. And I was elated to hear this. I'm like, ooh, I get two. <laughs> and but the whole thing was basically kind of what the outer purpose being what Viktor Frankl was talking about. Um, and you were alluding to, it's in that moment, right? You know, life is purpose. Like he says, if you're taking, drinking a cup of tea, you're, you're being mindful in that moment. That is your purpose. The next purpose is then to take it over to the sink. Your life, you know, we're looking sometimes for something larger or grand. And to me, the grandeur comes from the inner life, which totally says it's all of our responsibility. Our inner purpose is to awaken. And I, that struck me a lot because um, I, I feel like that's what it is, is that we are contributing to an awakening when we have this inner life, We when we make choices, when we can 
um, be mindful and in the present moment and see things as they are instead of as as loss. I mean, people who prisoners of concentration camps. I mean, the ultimate in loss. I mean, horrific. And if I I, I often think about if they can go through that. Um, the things that we, the daily suffering that we put upon ourselves is unnecessary. You know, we kind of forget that it's, it's not like juxtaposing or contrasting to the worst possible thing, but sometimes we make a mountain out of a molehill. I know I'm really good at that. (laughs) Um, But it's finding that purpose. It's being mindful in the moment that like you had said, your mother told you that you're not promised tomorrow. So why not make today purposeful? Right. But that's difficult. It is. And I think that sometimes we can remember it for a few few, few days and then we get caught up. We get caught up. We get yes. caught up in the routine. We get caught up in, in the traffic. We get caught up in, in everything. And, and we talk often, I know, about moments of gratitude and, and being grateful for, for all of those things. As you said, realizing the suffering that goes on in the world and uh, certainly doesn't diminish the, you know, the suffering that we endure personally, but it, it, does create a sense of gratitude for where we are in life and can definitely make life a, a more satisfying experience. I, uh, I remember a story, uh, sorry. Oh, a, a story that with regard to this, this was a little, a strange one, but one that really made my head spin was around the testing uh, of an ape for the polio vaccine. I don't know if you remember this one. I don't know if I can remember that one. Oh, okay. So Maybe he I'll just broke my memory. <laughs> Uh, the Cole's notes of it are basically that they were doing, ex- he was working with a group and he said to them, if an ape were being experimented on and he was being pricked by a needle multiple times because they were working to develop a vaccine for polio and you were to ask that ape the purpose of his suffering, do you uh, expect that he would know why or be able to understand, you know, his his greater purpose in life in finding a, a vaccination for polio? And of course, the the group said, no, of course not. He's only an ape. And he then compared it to the fact that, you know, man has evolved so far from that level of being an ape. And so at this point, we may still not fully understand our suffering, but we may not be at the end of our evolution. You know, if we've evolved that far, yeah. where will we be down the road and fully understanding the purpose of suffering? And I, I just found that that idea fascinating that we tend to think of ourselves as highly evolved, that we're at the, you know, at the yes. end point. And uh, we truly aren't. It's we are all a work in progress, uh, not only within our own lives, but as as a species. You know, we're, where will we be 100 years yeah. from now? We will have a much greater understanding. I wonder even whether you know, 50 years ago, were people talking about mindfulness and gratitude and authentic self at the level that we're doing today? Yeah, I yeah, I wonder too, because there was certainly a group of people that um, might have been, I don't know if it would have been even like hippies or yogis, I would hear those terms, and they were like more granola. I don't know if they were the person who people who were doing the mindfulness and the meditating. But it certainly didn't seem to be as rampant as it is today. And I think it's a good thing, because it means people are more aware of an inner life. And I think as a lot of people have fallen away from the church, like you say, the, the organized religion that we're often exposed to as a child. And then as we grow older, we're trying to make sense of how this fits into our life and um, and we're finding new ways to create meaning. Um, so I, I don't know if it's more rapid or it's like you had said at the beginning, if you get a new car and red car and then you see red cars <laughs> everywhere, because I, I tend to then travel in the circles with those people who want to talk about these kinds of things. So yeah, that is an interesting perspective if if it's more uh, prominent or not. Well, yes, or just yeah, more main or Perhaps if we went back 200 years ago, it would be interesting. I'll research that at some point, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know I had written down or I thought I had seen that um, Victor Frankl had said that that you actually don't have to suffer to to have meaning in your life. And w- which to me is good news. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> because, it, 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 you know, it, I think 
you know, why do we, I always wonder about that. It's like, can we not get as much from joy as we can from the suffering? I'm sure if we unpacked our joy, we would get the same <laughs> lessons as if we unpacked our suffering, but we don't pay attention unless we're suffering, right? When we're feeling good, we're like partying is like, hand me another drink. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to unpack this. This is, feels too good. But when we're suffering, we're going, why is this happening to me? I can't believe it. And now we're suddenly searching uh, to figure it out. Um, And so I was elated when I read that, that we don't need to suffer in order to have meaning. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I I do. I I love the idea of... uh you know, not having to unpack joy. <laughs> let's just, let's just take it for, you know, for what it is and enjoy the moment. But, you know, when we talk about suffering being tied to attachment, if you're looking at, you know, from a, a Buddhist perspective, then even with joy, we become attached. We can have some suffering when we anticipate the loss of that joy. Uh, this, you know, it brings mm-hmm. me back to a conversation I had with my husband where we watched this time-lapse video of a man who had taken a picture of his daughter from birth uh, to uh, adulthood and every year and sort of morphed it. So you could see her grow throughout the years. And my husband was like, that's, that's awesome. I think that's a really cool idea. And to me, it created a bit of sadness. And it was an interesting, uh, you know, discussion on why we both viewed it differently. For me, I was Mm -hmm. perceiving it as, as moments lost, you know, that life is fleeting. And even though, you know, each of those moments would be small moments of joy, there was an attachment to wanting to keep that moment. And so even though the suffering may not be at the level of, you know, uh, existing in a a war-torn country or or going through a concentration camp experience or um, some other you know traumatic life event there can still be that minute suffering we experience every day when we do attach ourselves too much to uh, Mm -hmm. to to things or to moments and uh, and then anticipate the loss yeah, that's so true. And it's funny that you say that because I was just thinking about this recently because I have a daughter going to university in the fall. Oh. And I would often see these Facebook uh, posts around graduation. And it's usually um, often like moms posting about loss of their eight-year-old child, the 10-year-old child, the 12-year-old child. And I'm reading them going, you know, I'm getting more and more sad. <laughs> Think about that. And my, and my own personal effort to stay attached to my joy as I as I get older, to, to, for me, is really building that inward life. I wanted to focus, to choose on, uh, yet to focus on, but I haven't met the 20-year-old or the 21 or the 25-year-old or the 30-year-old. And to trade that, or to, to your point, you know, to sort of detach, for me, it's like a bit of a shedding. Um, because if you're right, if I get attached to that and I see it as loss, if you think of it you know, what Viktor Frankl was doing, this reframing, um, and maybe I'm telling myself a story to make myself <laughs> feel better, but the focus that I'm not, I haven't lost it, but what I'm going to gain, what what I've yet to look forward to. Uh, and I know for me, that's like my little tactic in um, staying with my joy. But it's interesting that you mentioned that because I had been thinking about that recently. Well, and there, there was a passage, you had read a couple of passages from the book, and this is one that I had dog-eared because for that exact reason, I would often... Uh, just become saddened when I thought about, you know, growing older and, and the loss of those moments. So one of the uh, the passages is that in the past, uh, nothing is irretrievably lost, but rather on the contrary, everything is irrevocably stored and treasured. And and I, I really enjoyed how he viewed that, you know, and he talked about the elderly and he he says that there's no reason to pity old people. I'm, you know, I'm using his exact words there. So don't. (laughs) And um, instead, young people should envy them. It's true that the old may have no opportunities, no possibilities in the future, but they have more than that. Instead of possibilities in the future, they have realities in the past, the potentialities they have actualized, the meanings they have fulfilled, the values they have realized, and nothing and nobody can ever remove these assets from the past. And I, I just found that so comforting to, to think of it that way, to mm-hmm. think that we've we've secured our memories, that they're protected, that they've happened and we have them. And uh, whereas the future isn't promised. And uh, mm-hmm. so 
you know, why do we value more what is coming versus what has already happened in the past? Uh, it's just a different way of looking at it. And we right. talk of, as I, as we go through our conversation, I keep going back to your husband's comment around the stories we tell ourselves. <laughs> and I wonder, <laughs> and I wonder, you know, when we talk about stories, we talk about, I'm, I've been doing a lot of reading lately, trying to educate myself more on Indigenous peoples and uh, actually doing the course Indigenous Canada from the U- University of Alberta, which is an amazing mm-hmm. course. I highly recommend it. But, you know, very strong in the tradition of the Indigenous peoples is, is, is storytelling and that idea of how we learn from stories and, and to look at stories, not just as uh, uh, stories in and of themselves, you know, and it, uh, but or as as fables there are things that will teach us a lesson but they are often just us getting more insightful you know that perspective mm-hmm. is allowing us to go deeper and to look at things from multiple angles rather than just taking something at, at a very superficial level mm. I think we could do a whole episode oh, just yeah. on stories we tell ourselves <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of good ones. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that, that does leave me thinking sometimes when my husband, are we just not just telling stories? But if they're stories, they are reframing it because we get to choose what the truth is. And I keep going back to Dr. Edith Eggers, uh, you know, we have a choice. We have a choice in how we look at it. And I feel like we can either live our life from a sense of loss and and be sad or we can move toward our joy and and think about what what we have what we've had what we can still have and and the joy and the depth that you can get from the present moment it can be very difficult to um stay there but i think about you know what my day is today i'm sitting here having this amazing conversation with you and you and i won't have that again you know we may have other conversations but not this one and that to honor that in this moment that there's such rich richness in in joining with another like-minded individual to discuss something that we're both interested in and to share with the world and i think about there is such depth from all of our days if we have you know if we stop and can really drop into it and feel that you know i i love i love that comment and it's absolutely true every day is unique it's different and to reflect upon it as something to be treasured and to see the richness in the experience, yeah, you know, a great, a great word. It's, uh, it's absolutely true. I, you know, I, um, there, there was so much to this book and I, I feel as though I, when trying to explain it to somebody, I I never couldn't quite capture what he was able to put into words. So I, I definitely have this on my top of the list in terms of recommending. I don't know if you have books that you most recommend to people. Uh, What what would be some of the books? I do. Okay. Well, what would be one of your, uh, you know, top three, I guess I won't just go with one. I'll put top three so I can have them on my list. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, it is definitely um, Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth, but I always put it with a caveat and he puts it, I think like on page seven, if you're reading this and this does not make sense, put it away. Um, when I uh, was introduced to it is when Oprah Winfrey had done a, a series on it and they took a chapter a week and they did a worldwide like Skype uh, conversation. And it, I was, it, I was ripe for the conversation. I was so ready and I just couldn't wait every week. I was just thirsty for what he had to say. So I always recommend that one, but it is all, it's not always something that people are ready to read. Um, another one that I often recommend is Dr. Wayne Dyer's The Power of Intention. Okay. Um, uh, a lot of his work are just, it's just really, it's an easy read. It's an enjoyable read. And that's another one that I'm going to reread because I haven't read it in a while. And um, I'm trying to think what would be another one that I often, there's there's different leadership books that I recommend. Um, from a nonfiction and not so spiritual one, it would be like Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. It's just meaty, um, just helping you get through life and, and navigating. It's about coaching and asking great questions. And I've recommended a lot to um, leadership clients because it'll really help them solidify, it, making conversations easier. So I, I tend to alternate or oscillate between the personal development spirituality books and, and leadership books. So those would be top, a uh, top three that I would, I would talk about quite a bit. 
Well, that's interesting. And I, I will definitely listen back to make note of, <laughs> of the names, uh, given my memory at this <laughs> point in time. But uh, I think that those are all books that I know I would find uh, of interest. And I'm sure the listeners would as well. Yeah. Have you read much of, of Dr. Wayne Dyer? Uh, I haven't, but I will definitely check that out. And I have, I am, I am, I have a long list of books, but I work through them very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has a lot of great ones, like Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life, Excuses Be Gone. I think he has like 35. So, you know, you have a whole series to make your way through. And he has the one that sort of launched his career, I think it's called The Erroneous Zone. So, um, uh, yeah, so he's another one. And he actually had a relationship with Viktor Frankl. Oh, so, okay. Um, he, he knew him, uh, yeah, I think at the end of his life or through his psychology work, um, they crossed paths at one time. So I always find that. And as I said, I think that's where I originally heard that title. So, um, and Wayne has a very, um, I guess, spiritual way of looking at things. It's just an easy, easy way of looking, an easy way of, of moving through life. You just got to remind yourself to do it. <laughs> Easier said than done. Oh, isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, were you, how were you different walking away from this book um, than when you entered it? I think the key point for me was, I, I mentioned earlier that I have always been very scientifically minded. <laughs> I, you know, mm -hmm. and this really made me rethink a lot of what my beliefs were around, you know, science being very separated from the spiritual I, mm. I'm actually reading at the moment, um, Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, which is, uh, by Robin Hall Kimmerer. And, uh, it, it is basically looking at indigenous wisdom and it looks at, uh, our relationship with plants and she's a botanist. And it's another example of that tying of science and spirituality. And the more and more I, I, I read and I'm exposed to these uh this these ways of thinking it just allows me to realize how little i know <laughs> if that makes sense mm -hmm. the, the more right. the more i read mm -hmm. these books the more I get that. the more unsure i am of these these strong held beliefs that uh you know you know, medicine is the only thing that's important when somebody's going through uh you know an illness well you know it's i've watched my father go through, uh, you know, and, and, and her, you know, really quite a horrific experience, uh, having such a, a traumatic brainstem stroke. And I know that hope very much played a role in his rec recovery. And I know Victor Frankel talks about the, the power of hope to affect, uh, you know, whether people made it through. He talked about how many people passed away between Christmas and New Year's because they had mm -hmm. anticipated being back home with loved ones by Christmas each year. And when that didn't come to fruition, uh, their bodies, you know, joined their minds and, and simply, you know, gave up the fight. And I feel that uh, walking away from this book, I, I see more the link toward our mindset and our physical being and they are so strongly tied. Now, if you ask, you know, my my twenty year old self sitting in a, a science class in university when I knew everything, <laughs> uh, you know, um, I, I I never would have guessed that you know that there was such a strong mind body connection. And I know probably people listening would think how how could you not see that sooner? And I and I think I have I. In, in the back of my mind, and perhaps I knew it was there, but it this solidified that, you know, it, it truly does exist. And it is a very strong connection. And it, it can make mm. the difference between life or death for many people. It's so true. And, and kind of wrap around to the, the beginning of our conversation, we're talking about, you know, identities and, and Deepak Chopra, I think it said, when you're born, we're giving this identity, we're born into a family that's already, you know, celebrating a religion, and you're given us, you know, you're a, a sex, male or female, and you have all these other things, we're uh, this, this, you know, a uh, Catholic, uh, what, whatever it is. And then he said, you spend your rest of your life, um, 
you know, basically shedding these <laughs> or defending them. And, and but I see it is sometimes it's a constant shedding of who you think, you know, who are who are you? You think, you know, but you don't know. And just like I can imagine as you're sitting in your science class when you're 20 year old self, it's like I think it is an evolution. It's a it's either an on learning or an evolving in consciousness. Things happen in life that give you context to learn from, especially when you're you're up against suffering like you had with your dad. And it's funny because my husband and I would often argue over certain points. And I recognized eventually that he always argues from the point of science. He's a science mind. And I tend to argue point for, uh, argue from the point of intuition and spirit and what I sense and what I believe and what I think I know. And I realized one day that we were really arguing the same side of the point. We were just coming at it from different perspectives. So it didn't mean that one of us, it sounded like one of us was white and one <laughs> of us was wrong. <laughs> But I, we actually weren't. We just had different ways of explaining it that that uh, made sense to us, right? But isn't that perfect? It's it's perfect to come at it from mm. two, two directions and and to have that balance. And yes, you're right. Oftentimes we are defending the ex- the exact same point from a different <laughs> perspective. We just have we each have our own from a different perspective. our different language or a different story, I guess, <laughs> for that same point. It's I, true. And and, and and even to you, we just said about medicine and uh, sorry, and, and, and things that you said, medicine is important or the only way. And then you're, you know, you saw how hope it's all those intangible things that we don't, uh, that we can't see or feel, but we know contribute. So it's this constant shedding of what we think we know um, about life. Well, and, and you mentioned about you know, what we think of ourselves, you know, are the labels, you know, the, sh- the shedding of those mm-hmm. labels and, and part of our identity. I was, uh, I, I was listening to a commencement speech that Jim Carrey had made. And he talks about the, the same idea that mm. we, we play this character, you know, we're, we are yeah. very much, uh, you know, our, our parents child, or our, you know, our spouses, uh, <laughs> husband or wife, and we are constantly going yeah. through life playing this character, the whether even, you know, I'm, I'm Amy, you know, that's my name. I was given that name at birth, but mm. now I must, you know, play the character of, of Amy and all that, that entails. You know, I, I live in Canada and what, what does that all involve? And he actually relates it to depression and says depression is when you, you need a, you take a rest, you take a rest from playing that character when your your mind becomes so exhausted from dealing with all of the labels that have been put on you since birth then you take a break and become more of your true self and uh mm. and just playing that role can lead to can be exhausting at times and i guess that's when we we talk about getting to our authentic self is to to be able to shed some of that and to get to to the essence of who we are without you know, having to go to the level of depression and, and to, to get there. Mm. And as I said, it is very difficult if you ask somebody to, to say who they are without them attaching labels to themselves. It's true. It's true. It's a difficult, you know, difficult way to identify. Um, Now I've, I've had some tips and tricks through the years of things that I do with coaching of other ways to be able to help people, uh, you know, explain who they are without having to say labels, um, you know, this sense of knowing, because I think it's such an important question. It's probably the greatest question you ask, you know, who am I? It takes you someplace. Um, but it can be very frustrating. <laughs> you know, it's such an overwhelming question to ask. And, um, you know, that makes you want to go eat cake or something. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> it's a, it gives us all our vices <laughs> oh yeah that, I, lo- I love that that's hilarious it's it, it's so true some this stuff can be so hard on our our head you know when we look yes it, yeah. when we look up to the stars and we try to contemplate you know how it all began and where was the beginning and if there was no beginning and we're you know we're and and, and <laughs> yeah. infiniteness uh, infiniteness of the the galaxies and the, and the universe and it's it's uh it is all very hard on our head. And sometimes it is easier just to eat cake. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and to, to piggyback on that, to give you another book recommendation, it was one that came from Wayne Dyer when I saw him on stage just months before he passed. And it was called The Impersonal Self. Uh, I think by Dr. Brenner is the last name. Um, it's a small book. It's, it's not greatly edited because he also wrote it way back in like 1920 or something like that. And it's a really sort of a channel. He was a Lutheran minister and it's a channeled, um, basically explanation of life. It's, it's very fascinating. It's, um, yeah, talking about taking it back to the beginning. So you're like, okay, <laughs> if you want, if you want to throw, you, you know, more things into your head and try to sort this out, but um, it's also an interesting read. I'll definitely add that. Well, one I think we list. could talk about this all day. <laughs> I, I absolutely could, you know, I love, I love this stuff and I am so appreciative that you uh, thought of me to have this conversation uh, because I've really, really enjoyed yeah. discussing this amazing book with you. I, I'm thankful for Mr. Frankel for having uh, the forethought to to put his thoughts down uh, on paper so soon after going through that experience, because mm. to think of how many people have benefited from what, uh, you know, what he endured, that in of itself speaks to the meaning in his life. And uh, I feel Absolutely. very great, grateful for that. Right. Because really, you can imagine going through something like that. And then that's just the scientist or whatever in him that I must help people to actually be able to capture that. Because I think it would be very difficult to to write about or to bring up. And uh, and I think it was written quite, what did you say, 1946? Yes, the original version under German under another title, but uh, it was the sort of the, the first version of this book. And so, yes, yeah. he must put it together re relatively quickly. And and perhaps, you know, that, that was what got him through his experience, you know, writing mm -hmm. this book. Absolutely. I'm, yeah, I'm sure absolutely. That, that played a strong part in it. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about the book that you haven't said that you think's important? Well, you know, I, I guess just to speak a little bit more to Frankel, and uh, he talks about the fact that he actually corresponded with Freud early on when he was studying psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And Freud was very much focused on the fact that we're all motivated by pleasure. And I, to me, I, I line mm -hmm. that with where we are in our 20s, you know, where that's where we're focused. And then he talks about Adler's school of thought being that we're motivated by, you know, power and success and achievement. And for many of us, that happens mm -hmm. further along in our 30s. Some, for some of us, that's where we, where we stay. But then I look at Frankel as looking at the fact that we can be motivated by the meaning in our lives. And I feel like that's mm -hmm. what needs to carry us through when we talk about existential crisis and uh, you know what, what people go through yeah. later on in life, I feel his his idea of logotherapy, of finding meaning as a way of comfort, is is so important, and I feel like people can truly benefit from that. And I I often talk about the seasons of our lives. I, I just feel that that seems like a uh, a nice a nice way to refer to it. But certainly, I I feel I'm in a season of my life where. I, I truly do value meaning and purpose above all else and wanting to make a positive mm. impact, uh, not only for the, you know, the people I love, but for my, my environment and, and all those I, I come in contact with. So I, I feel that this book, you know, was just another, you know, tool in the toolbox uh, to help me along my journey. And I'm, I'm thankful to have read it. Yeah. Well, I'm thankful for having this conversation and thank you for bringing about uh, the information up about Freud and Adler, because that was really uh, Victor Frankl's, I think, whole th thing idea was that um, really Freud say people want pleasure from life. Adler saying, uh, you know, success and achievement and, and, and Frankl's whole thing was basically actually we're trading all of those out for meaning. People are driven and motivated by meaning. And um, I, I think that, you know, I guess that's the premise of the logotherapy and what a lot of his research through his life. So I was trying to recall that from the beginning of the book. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, well, this conversation, yeah, we could go on for hours. I'm sure we, <laughs> we can take out a lot of books. Um, so I, I do appreciate you taking some time to um, to chat with me. And how can people get in touch with uh, the InfoQuench uh, podcast? I know you have a, uh, an Instagram 
file and um you, of course you're on spotify and itunes and- yeah so infoquench uh it, we have our website at infoquench.com you can find us on facebook twitter instagram and in terms of listening to our episodes we've got 100 plus and counting you can find us anywhere you listen to your podcast just google infoquench and you will find a myriad of ways uh to listen to uh, many of our episodes and we cover a wide variety of topics. So there's sure to be something for everyone. They're usually about a half hour long. So very digestible. Be sure to check them out. Mm, Awesome. And I just have a last couple of questions for you with my soul sister rapid fire questions. If you want to play. Oh, sure. (laughs) Uh, Just some simple, easy questions. (laughs) What have you come to know about the power of being you? Wow. I feel as though as the years go on, I've truly embraced the qualities that are unique to me. And I also realized that what I early on in my life saw as flaws or faults or (laughs) things that uh, were not necessarily traits that I would aspire to. I now look upon as being my source of power, you know, whether it's uh, I'm an anybody who meets me will say I'm an incredibly uh, detail oriented person. I love to keep things organized. And uh, there's been several words used to describe me, not all of them I can repeat. But (laughs) I realize now that, uh, you know, that that is just one of one of my gifts, one of the things that makes me unique. And, uh, and it's definitely uh, part of the, how I bring meaning and impact in my life. Mm. What has become abundantly clear to you? That above all else, love is what is most important. I, 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 I know that sounds so, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, typical, a typical answer, but I, through this pandemic, the relationships we have with our closest friends and family really have personally what it's, what got me through a a very difficult time, Mm. but it also, the pandemic made it very clear who, which relationships I valued most, who did I want to surround myself with and to look at those relationships that maybe were not, you know, filling my cup <laughs> in terms of uh, mm-hmm. uh, positive interactions. It was quite, you know, a social cleansing <laughs> to go to go through that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people went through that. And lastly, what does the world need most? We need compassion. I, you know, again, I go back to our current situation, whether we see people who are uh, looking at their individual freedoms in terms of mask wearing and, and, you know, looking past the the greater benefit for their community. I, I feel like we need to not just focus on our, on ourselves. We need to have compassion for our greater community and not just our, our neighborhood, not just our country, but our, our world over. And when we have so many people in need, we need to uh, make every effort we can to show compassion and, and to help our, our fellow humans. We're all we have. (laughs) We're all we have. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. I greatly appreciate it. I appreciate your insight. And it's been fun discussing a book with someone. <laughs> this was good. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yes. It's, uh, I can, like you said, I could talk for six hours, but uh, I think we drop off on the <laughs> listeners by then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if they made it this far, uh, they, they'll have uh, lots of book recommendations and um, maybe be encouraged to pick up uh, Frankel's book and see what it's all about. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much, Dana. That was such a great conversation. If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at CoachDana underscore Lloyd, and of course on LinkedIn. See you next week.